Welcome to episode 123 of Marvel Us. I'm your host, Tom Laurie, joined by my sister, Leona Laurie. Tonight we are continuing from 2019, produced by Eric Kripke, Evan Goldberg, and Seth Rogen, season one of The Boys. <laughs> So where we left off, Huey had killed Translucent and had a meet-cute with Annie, and they had recruited Frenchie to the boys. So uh, would you like to um, pick up what else happened in season one? Um, I'll do my best, but a lot happened. So over the course of season one... Huey and Billy Butcher's relationship got increasingly tense as Huey recognized that Billy was willing to throw anyone under the bus in service of his pursuit of justice and information regarding his missing and presumed dead wife. Um, And uh, Huey felt a sense of loyalty to the boys and... Um, chose them and a role with them uh, at even at risk to himself over freedom and pursuit of vigilante justice with Billy Butcher and they parted company. Uh, Huey finally has to come clean to a certain degree with Annie. Uh, he clues her in to the existence of Compound V, which she did not know about, and it turns out that some soups know that they're lab-created, and some soups really do believe that they are born that way. And this created a major identity crisis for Annie, who confronted her mom, and her mom confessed, we took money from Vought, uh, which covered medical bills, and yes, I was complicit in you being created. And Huey asked Annie to please join their cause and help undo Vought because they are bad guys and she's a superhero. And although at first she said, I will not do this, ultimately she did show up for him and take the side of the boys in one of their fights. During the course of the season... The boys discovered they they had been they figured out that A Train was using compound juicing on compound V that he'd been high on it when he ran through Huey's girlfriend Robin and that um, he was they they blackmailed his girlfriend Popclaw to find out that he was running compound V to some place in Chinatown and they found their way there and discovered a... They find a Japanese woman caged in the basement of this noodle restaurant. And Frenchie perceives her to be in danger by being in that cage and frees her. And that's when they discover that she is a soup. And she decimates her captors who come in just then. Um... And the boys give Frenchie what for, for having misread the situation some. 
but that is the catalyst for them figuring out that someone is using Compound V to create supervillains. And this is because Vought is trying to get their superheroes into the U.S. military, and the U.S. military is resistant to having privately owned heroes, basically, operating within their state-funded ranks. Um, Maybe but the... the least realistic part of the show. <laughs> yeah. But the advent of the supervillains forces their hand, and then the um, Vought heroes are allowed to participate in U.S. military activities because they're the only ones who can fight this new breed of terrorist. And um, it turns out that Kimiko is one of many terrorists, uh, people working within known terrorist organizations, who are being dosed with Compound V as adults um, rather than as babies. And although there's a high mortality rate from these experiments, the ones who survive do come out as supervillains. And... um, the only people who can fight them are superheroes. So um, ultimately, the boys capture Kimiko and tame her, basically. Like, she's more like uh, Helen Keller, you know, at the beginning of The Miracle Worker, where she's been in a cage and she is... uh, She's incapable of speech. She isn't deaf, um, but she can't speak. And so her communication options are limited, but Frenchie creates a bond with her. And he basically says to her, I perceive you as someone who is just trying to get home, but there's an opportunity for you to help us get the people who did this to you. Will you stay and work with us? And she agrees to. Um, At one point in trying to sort out some of what's going on uh, and understand what's going on with her better, Mother's Milk and Frenchie and Huey take Kimiko to see Haley Joel Osment, who was a teen soup, and he is a psychic soup. And so he's able to hold her hand and read her history to them and tell them, yes, she's a member of this terrorist organization, but it was because of conscription. She and her brother were brought in as child soldiers. Their whole family was murdered in front of them. And all she really wants is to find her brother. And this convinces the boys that they're going to give her a real chance because she wasn't a terrorist on purpose and she just wants to get her brother back. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Haley Joel Osment misreads where his loyalty should lie and he tries to turn these people over to um, Homelander and Vought uh, because they are all wanted criminals now, the boys. And um, Homelander thanks him for his information and takes off without doing anything anything reciprocal. Um, and so Haley Joel Osment is no better off for having ratted them out. But when Billy finds out about uh, Haley Joel Osment's involvement and how he's responsible for their identities being linked to Kimiko and their activities and their anti vaught activities, he violently bashes Haley Joel Osment's head against a men's room sink until he's dead, which is, like, really shocking. Mm -hmm. I mean, for all the people who explode in front of you in this show, that one really got me. Um, 
I, I can't remember his soup name. I want to say Mentos, but that isn't Mesmer. it. Mesmer. Mesmer. Thank you. Um, so anyway, um, A-Train kills his girlfriend Popclaw when he finds out that she gave him up uh, and frames it as a heroin overdose. Um, and the boys get caught by Vought agents who cage Kimiko again, this time in a medical experiment warehouse of some kind. And although um, Huey, in his break with Billy, is able to help Mother's Milk and Frenchie escape from their little cage that they've been put in, Kimiko has been separated from them. And so they go to rescue her. And as they are successfully rescuing her pretty much uh suddenly they are outnumbered by vought guys with machine guns and annie shows up to save them and help huey and then a train shows up to go up against annie and accuse her of having been a traitor all along but he's juicing again and he has a heart attack and so annie's able to let the boys escape and she and Huey broker sort of like a tenuous piece where he's lied to her so much that she can't really be relaxed with him, but she recognizes that they're kind of on the same side of issues. Um, and she fakes to the Vought ambulance type thing that uh, she was there with a train and is there helping him by the time help comes. Um, and then, uh, Billy, when he and Huey have their break, he has figured out with the help of his, um, former mentor that really the only thing that Homelander cares about is still, well, Elizabeth Shue. Mm-hmm. And so Billy goes to Stillwell's house and takes her hostage and contact has her contact Homelander and tell him to come over. And when Homelander gets there, um, he has found out through his investigation that, um, well, we've learned that Homelander raped Billy's wife and then she disappeared. And that's why he's so hell-bent on revenge against Homelander, because he sees him as being personally responsible for that. Well, Homelander finds out, because he was kind of obsessed with Billy's wife, um, that he impregnated her, and he didn't think that that was possible, and that that's why she disappeared. And he's told a lie by Stillwell and the scientist who raised him in a lab, that Becca Butcher died in childbirth and the baby died as well. Um, and Homelander spots a disparity in their versions of those things, which makes him, uh, go back to the scientist and, you know, it's implied that he basically kills him to get the story out of him that in reality, Vought has had Becca Butcher and Homelander's son in a facility they own somewhere um, all of this time. And so, uh, when Homelander comes to Stillwell's house to confront Billy, 
Billy thinks that he is going to win this confrontation because he has the only thing that Homelander cares about. And what he's done is strapped an explosive vest to Stillwell so that he can say, I'm going to blow up your girlfriend if you don't, I don't know what. Like, he doesn't even seem all that clear about what he really wants from Homelander except for, mm-hmm. for him to be in pain. Um, and... Homelander in front of him confronts Stillwell and says, I know that you lied to me. Tell me the truth. And she's like, I'm scared of you. And he's like, thank you so much. And then he burns her eyeballs out with his laser eyes. And um, Billy is kind of caught off guard for a second. But then he's like, well, who cares? I'm going to blow all, blow all of us up after all. And instead, he wakes up on a lawn somewhere and Homelander has taken him to where Becca is. And Billy comes to to see Homelander greeting a boy and saying, I'm your father. And then Becca comes out and Billy's like, Becca. And she looks at him and then Billy blacks out again. And uh, that's all we know by the end of season one is that Becca's alive. She's being kept in this Vought compound and has given birth to and been raising Homelander's son as a result of their sexual encounter, which at that point, we still don't know for sure whether it actually was rape um, or if she had an affair with Homelander. Um, And uh, the boys are operating independently of Billy with Kimiko and with some support from Annie. And A-Train is down with the after effects of a heart attack. And Stillwell, who had only, you know, very typical of storytelling moments before, been told by her boss that she was doing such a great job by getting Vought into the military that uh, she was going to be his successor. And now she's dead instead. Homelander confesses to her, it was me who went and took Compound V to all the terrorists. A-Train was running it for me. I'm the one who got it in. And it turns out that Homelander is a great deal more dangerous than anyone even gave him credit for because in addition to being a killer who loves killing and is very difficult to kill himself, uh, he also has unleashed supervillains on the world through his short-sighted effort to get Vought into the military. And I think I covered all of the high points there. Yeah, I think the only um, thread you left out was the Deep. Oh, yeah, I forgot about him. <laughs> Annie at a like a Christian superhero sort of convention thing um, in sort of oblique terms uh, says that she was assaulted and everyone, you know, immediately puts it together that, oh, it was that, that guy because he's such a known creep and uh he is kicked out of the seven and sent to ohio and uh, uh just sort of uh un- unravels there he well he first he tries to um save a dolphin from a sea world equivalent to to get 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 his uh image back and uh <laughs> and he he slams on the brake and the dolphin blasts through the windshield into the street and is immediately run over by an 18 wheeler and uh it, it's all it's all basically downhill for him from there well one of the great moments with him too in sandusky where he's been uh shipped off to is he brings a girl back to his hotel room to fool around with her and she gets him to take off his shirt and 
uh, which he's really reluctant to do because it turns out he has gills on his torso Mm -hmm. and um, she sexually assaults him and fingers his gills while she rides him. And uh, it seems like maybe her intention was payback for Annie um, or at least to turn the tables on a known creep. Um, and so Sandusky is not going great for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I like the uh, design of his anatomical gills that they are where his lungs are as well. Like, uh, you know, not like on his face or on his neck or whatever that, they're, mm. you know, make sense for where gills would be, but also that uh, he's ashamed of them. Yeah, he, he's a... He's a creep, but he's a, an interesting character. And um, also that uh, Kimiko fights Black Noir, who remains a mystery, but uh, he slices her up real good, but reveals that her power is the uh, Wolverine healing factor. Mm, yes. But um, no, other than that, yeah, you got it all? Good. I got the important stuff, I think. I mean, like, clearly there's a ton of detail I left out. Well, um, you mentioned that you'd already moved on to season two, so I take it you enjoyed season one. Um, but uh, what would you think of it after it all wrapped up? Well, I th- I think that more than anything else, I continue to think that Jack Quaid is a very engaging actor, and I would like to see more from him. You know, I think the whole cast is so good, and they sell this reality um well enough that you're following the story and engaged with it rather than getting hung up on the details being a little bit outrageous um but more than anything i think it's him who grounds it you know he he's got charisma he's got that it factor of like you know he's so believable that i am willing to go with him where he's going um and something about like you know having been watching his parents all my life i mm. i just feel like proud of him like good job jack quaid i i'm really happy and i want to support you in your future endeavors um and i thought i liked i i knew i i'd seen spoilers because you know like i said i was copy editing the um recaps of this show for geek girl authority and so i knew that becca was in a compound with the sun like i i i couldn't remember the details because the characters didn't mean anything to me yet when i was reading those so that wasn't a surprise to me when that twist came but um just seeing how cuckoo bonkers homelander is has been a revelation and um Season one deep, I had kind of forgotten about, despite his, you know, dolphin escapade and everything. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so much fun how how many instances they come up with of him trying to save a sea creature and immediately getting it killed. Yeah. Like uh, Aquaman, but just really bad at it. Bad at being Aquaman. Um, yeah, I... I like it so much more than I expected to. And I think that the acting is 
really where it's at for a show that has such a fantastical um, premise, but in a really cluttered superhero space where, you know, there's a bazillion superhero pieces of entertainment to choose from what would make you choose this one. And I would say the acting is head and shoulders above a lot of the other non-MCU offerings. Yeah, I think the cast is really good and like the world building is really good for having a perspective on on superheroes for mm. like at you know clearly having something to say about it and not just like you know uh trite symbolism or whatever. Mm. Yeah, there's some stuff coming up in season 2 that I don't know that we'll ever get to in the podcast um that doubles down on on that um and and i think i can i mean i don't know why i should be protective of spoilers since this has been out for a long time but uh when homelander is confronting the head of the company about how they're a superhero company and he's their key asset and the ceo is like we're a pharmaceutical company Mm mm-hmm and I thought, oh, that is just like, that That takes it even further into, I believe this as like a possible timeline of the world that we live in now where like, you know, they could be changing human evolution literally with their pharmaceutical intervention, but the pharmaceutical is the product. It's not... right the thing that the public is engaged with or the millions of dollars in movies and merchandising that come from it. Yeah. Like, uh, it's interesting for all that Homelander manages to figure out about the company that he never really gets that he's just their product, but also that his son is his replacement that like, you know, like, uh, it's, it's never clear. Like the implication seems pretty strong that Homelander raped Becca, but also it seems... Well, in season one... Well, I mean... I came away from the end of season one saying... I honestly, at the end of season one, I was like, is Billy delusional about what his marriage was? Is he romanticizing it in retrospect and was maybe Becca in a consensual relationship with Homelander? Because Homelander's... He, like, he seems nothing, totally oblivious to it. But there's nothing but, to suggest that Homelander gets around. Like, he no. has this weird dynamic with Stillwell, but eight years have passed since Becca disappeared, and he's fixated on her. It's not like... And to the point where I was like, oh, maybe it was a mutual relationship. And, you know, like, I, in I season two, it's revealed, no, it wasn't that. I don't. He's not. He's not fixated on her until he remembers who Billy is. Like there's uh, when uh, A Train's having his race, then everyone's watching the race, but Billy's the only guy in the crowd turned backwards, staring at Homelander, and it takes Homelander a while to put together where he recognizes this guy from until like you know it's like oh he's he's you know a terrorist or whatever, and then he remembers oh he was Becca's husband and like like it's it's only as the cracks in the story about who Becca was and what what happened to her start to show up that he gets really invested in that. But, um, and it's also, uh, implied that he had a relationship with Maeve in the past. So, like, he's not, you know, he's not getting around like the other hero dudes seem to be. But also, like, the impression I got was that it, it at, at best, 
Becca was coerced by the company into letting it happen. Mm. And that Homelander, in his position, isn't, you know, one to question why why he gets to have sex with a woman or not. Mm. And uh, because, like, it seems very, you know, having an entire Truman Show uh, neighborhood built just for them uh, to, to raise this kid, like, it seemed, and like, uh, the doctor... I think it's uh, Rosenbaum or something like that, when he's telling his version of the story to Homelander that basically their mistake was raising him in a lab when he should have raised by a, been back, raised by a parent, which, you know, isn't an admission that this whole enterprise was corrupt, but just that they did it wrong and that mm. next time they'll let, the, uh, they'll let Homelander 2 be raised by a loving mother and uh, th- that, you know, the whole thing seems like a- another concoction. Mm-hmm. So, having gotten the rest of the way through the season, we watched this as a compliment to Falcon and Winter Soldier, and I I think that all the points that you made about where the Falcon and Winter Soldier backed off of uh, the message, and I, I think that this is a good counter to that, to say this is what it looks like if you go all the way with the point that you're making and don't dilute it towards the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really like Annie as a sort of parallel to Falcon in that context where like, even when she knows all of the problems with this uh, world and her situation, that it's all, you know, um, corrupt bullshit that she doesn't, there's no out there's no easy answer that if anything it just pushes her in further into the uh, the darkness of it of trying now you know knowing knowing how awful her situation is just uh makes it worse doesn't doesn't give you know she can't give some impassioned speech to uh to make things better she just has to play along even more now yeah yeah when season two comes back after she's you know, in her heart and in her actions, chosen Huey's side. She is wearing the slutty outfit that Vought has designed for her with the hair extensions and holding Homelander's hand in public and eulogizing Translucent um, on the public stage where he's been acknowledged as dead, but they've created a false narrative about the circumstances so that it seems to be the work of supervillains. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's, she's so apparently all in as a Vought tool. And that is a far more effective place to be as a Vought counter agent. So, You know, but also you're right, like, what else could she do? You know, she knows this organization is kind of evil and she's already gotten herself in trouble. Like, she can't walk away. They won't let her walk away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that. I think that's a real element that was missing from Falcon and Winter Soldier is any sort of fear from Falcon where it's like, the further you've gone into this, the more you've seen the depth of power you're against, where it's like, they can make more Captain Americas, you know? Like, they've they've, they've been trying to do this for however many decades, and then they succeeded, and why would you think 
they wouldn't succeed again, you know? Like, mm-hmm. uh, this isn't going to stop now. So, like, um, the idea that his speech would be any sort of conclusion to it, right? That he's, uh, you know, that he, he never even figured out who the power broker was. So, like, uh, it's it's still going to continue and uh, they act like it's over. Mm-hmm. Or, like, you know, the continuing adventures of... Um, a U.S. agent and stuff like mm-hmm. uh, not not going to that uh, there there aren't wider repercussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing we didn't talk about was the plane crash, where a, a plane has been skyjacked, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Maeve and Homelander are sent to resolve it. And uh, in in his classic fashion, he just uh, Homelander's laser eyes all the, all the guys, and in the process destroys the control panels for the plane and uh so they can't land the plane and uh they can't <laughs> like i like i like um you know that the you know they're out over the ocean so they can't just uh whisk all the people off off one at a time to land before it crashes and uh when Maeve suggests why don't why don't you get under the plane and push you know like superman or whatever that like like you know taking into account the uh, the physics of that scenario where he'd probably just go through the plane and not not actually lift it and um, ultimately they just they just take off they let let the plane crash and how that plays into their whole um, scheme to get the uh, military contracts of uh, saying that oh yeah we we tried to save the plane. But we couldn't get there in time because we weren't working in coordination with the military, so it crashed without us. But also of Maeve really turning on Homelander, of being put in that scenario of, you know, not not only not being able to save anyone, but really callously turning their backs on all of these people before they all died. Mm. Well, and him not letting her save even one so that there wouldn't be witnesses right. to their... Com- complicity in the situation yeah but like um i thought that was you know it's a it's another thematically strong moment of how a lot of like uh pro-military and pro-cop propaganda works where like if uh if things go right it's because the military or cops did did a good job and if things go wrong it's because uh you weren't letting them do a good job like uh, there's no no scenario where it's uh, their fault. Mm, mm-hmm. They're always always able to spin it. Well, I don't know if uh, you'll have an answer for this since we already did it for this show, but maybe maybe you'll think of something um, different having seen the rest of the season. But is there anything from this you would want to see in the MCU? I think that Annie's relationship with her costume that the one, the wholesome one she's been wearing forever on the Bible circuit that Vought replaces with the sexy one once she's made her speech at the Bible convention and um, they're recasting her as being empowered, which she's expressing by being sexy. Um, Her response to that, her conflict with it, the, the relationship she has with that costume... And interacting with a little girl who is wearing a version of her, you know, 
virginal looking costume while she's dressed like a Barbie um, and feeling conflicted about the little girl aspiring to owning this slutty costume. All of that's missing from the female characters in the MCU where they're all wearing these skin tight outfits with heels to do their jobs and nobody appears to have forced them into it. You know, like why Mm -hmm. aren't, why aren't any of them wearing something more utilitarian or talking about like the function of these clothes? Like why, like if Iron Man's suit is like his whole origin story and you know, every, every Spider-Man movie except for this new reboot has like the whole origin of the suit. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the suit gets a lot of energy in the male stories and, you know, black widows just wearing this like black leather onesie all the time. And, you know, Gamora and Nebula are in like different color versions of the same outfit. And, you know, what, why are they wearing it? How do they feel about it? And after the Battle of New York, when the Avengers are sort of out to the public, and we've seen since then bootleg copies of videos of that event being sold on street corners and, you know, Hulk signing autographs in Endgame, like they are kind of celebrities in the way of the mm-hmm. Vought heroes. Um, and so there's got to be a degree of emulation and there's no moment of reflection of what that means. Like that there's Mm -hmm. little girls dressing up like that or, you know, children play acting these events that have been so traumatic for these heroes. Um, and I think that kind of like, you know, I've come at the, um, wardrobe being so impractical for the women so many times but seeing Annie have a pretty short conversation all things considered about this outfit she was being asked to wear by Vought and then having that be the foundation for so much there's so many moments where that's meaningful and conveys information thereafter like Mm -hmm. Her clothes are part of her story the whole rest of the time. You know, they're, they, that's just her outfit until they ask her to wear a different sexy outfit. And then you know that whatever she's wearing is telling you a story about where she's coming from. And essentially it becomes her old outfit denotes when she's working on behalf of good and her sexy outfit denotes when she's in Vought-Bot mode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it... It's very interesting, but also contributes to your respect for her, like the audience's respect for her in knowing that she recognizes that she's a role model and that part of that is body image issues that she's passing on to little girls. Um, And I think that it would be nice if the MCU had some equivalent of that where it wasn't just like, I mean, look at how Scarlet Witch got her costume, her real costume in in the show where she just like manifests it in the sky. And it's like, yeah, but Mm -hmm. why that? Like, what's the point of this thing that you're wearing and how does it relate to the work that you're going to be doing 
as a superhero and your role as a public figure, um, it'd be nice if there was some, someone, like maybe not all of them, you know, and in season two, when they introduced the new member of Seven, uh, what's her name? Storm? Stormfront. Stormfront. And she's so vocally critical of the Vought machine and, and the costumes that don't have pockets for the girls and all of this, like, you know, they, they have, and, and even there's a conversation with Maeve, who's basically like, I gave up on fighting the machine a long time ago, Mm. you know, like all, all of the women talk about what it is to be a woman in that position on some level, and they don't belabor it. It doesn't have to take a ton of screen time in order for it to mean that the rest of the time when you're watching them, that dimension is present in your perception of them. And it it makes it more interesting and it makes them more human. Like it, it makes them feel realer to have had them consider these things and I think it would be nice if the MCU had some version of that. You know, Love and Thunder would be a great place to introduce that, too, because Jane seems exactly the kind of person who, transitioning from human to superhero right. and scientist to muscle lady, you know, like, she seems exactly the kind of person who would comment on those sorts of things and, and introduce that. So if not before, then by then I'd like to see it. Well, I think that's... Like, it's particularly true of the women in the MCU, but sort of generally true of everyone except for Spider-Man and uh, Iron Man, where it's just like, like, their costumes just, like, came in the package with them, you know? Like, like even if when they keep changing Captain America's costume, it's like, it's never like, oh, I, I, I chose this, I chose this, or I got this, or I need this for this, you know? There's no reason to, it's just like, this is what he looks like in this movie, and... I think uh, it's it's like they're made for the audience and not for the world. Whereas, mm. like, because they, you know, they see they basically exist apart from the like. The closest you ever get is uh, Captain Marvel um, letting uh, little Monica Rambeau uh, help design her costume. And I hate that picking... scene because it's yeah, stupid. it's 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 a, it's a very stupid uh, cornball scene that uh, you know conceptually like. I, lo- I like the idea, but the execution sucks. But also there, it's, you know, it's her interacting with a young human girl. And uh, bas- that, you know, that basically doesn't happen for other characters in the MCU. That that it's like uh, the MCU's like a insular world where it's mostly superheroes interacting with other superheroes or with people who are already in their clique. So like you you rarely get that any sort of real interaction like you know uh it, it's what works so well in the boys that like Vought as a company it's mostly normal people like they have superheroes working for them in uh, various roles but it's you know most of the people running the company doing pr administrative stuff normal people and then the boys except for kimiko normal people so it's mostly the perspective like you get both perspectives of this world of like people who aren't superheroes at all who aren't in like you know uh who who don't have any powers who that's not 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 their 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 path at all Mm -hmm. and people who do have superhero or superpowers so it's not like you know you you get you get that um 
perspective of reality of like what is how does superheroism factor into a real world versus just these little weird nods to it like people owning uh avengers halloween masks or whatever without ever considering where do those masks come from who's Mm -hmm. making the masks who's profiting from the masks Mm -hmm. like uh Mm -hmm. that they they never they never delve into the concept of like these people as they relate to the normal world Mm -hmm. so you know their costumes only have to exist as this is what they look like in this movie and uh you know, you're never never gonna get any any interaction with them and a a normal person who has a opinion on on that. Well, here's the thing, though. Like WandaVision, you know, Wanda exists amongst the normies the entire season. They're just under her thrall, so there's mm-hmm. no room for conversation about anything there. But then in Falcon and Winter Soldier, they actually do do that. Like, Falcon and Winter Soldier are, like, hanging out, working on the boat and having a lobster boil with everybody or crawfish boil with everybody from the Falcon's hometown and family. And, you know, people are always talking about his parents. He goes to the bank. Like, you know, they have that whole conversation about do Avengers get paid? And Mm -hmm. he gets paid for his job as a contractor for the military. But, you know... You're right. There's got to be a Falcon doll uh, in that world. And who is making that money? And, you know, there's definitely Captain America merch. Who is making that money? Is it the military? But, yeah, there isn't a moment. Like, I guess his sister kind of gives him some perspective on how his being a superhero doesn't actually make him special when it comes to the real world. But... There's, yeah, there's definitely something different about it. And I think part of it is that the superheroes are the lens through which we see the MCU. Mm-hmm. And Huey is the first lens through which we see this world. So yeah. although it's it's heavily populated with humans, and even though Annie is one of the other protagonists in the show that the dominant lens is the human lens on all of this. And I think that's sort of the direction of like Jessica Jones in particular of the Netflix Marvel shows where like, I think that's the one where I saw people selling bootleg merch on the corner when she was walking around New York and, you know, really only interacting with humans and, you know, having her issues as, as a result of her powers and life experiences. But like, I don't know, like part of it, part of what's working might be that Harry Potter factor, you know, just sort of how I always think of like, I do better with fantasy when there's someone I can relate to learning the world with me. And Huey totally Mm. plays that character of like, I'm new here. I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Every piece of information that the rest of the characters have always had access to is new information for me. The world is established and I'm new to knowing about it. And, and that, that makes it really easy to see through his eyes and experience things from his perspective. And the MCU doesn't, doesn't have an equivalent where it's a relatable person. Like typically it's like the new, the new soup is the one whose eyes we're seeing it through. And that's not the same as it being like, you know, I'm Pepper and it's my first day on the job here at, wow, everyone's a superhero. (laughs) 
know? Like, that's one of the moments I really, I really liked in the first season when um, A-Train has Huey's dad's hot, Huey's dad hostage, and uh, they, they go to Huey's house, and A-Train's rummaging through Huey's stuff, and finds all of his A-Train merch that not only was he a superhero fan, that he was specifically an A-Train fan before all of this. And like just that concept that he would have a room full of superhero Funko Pops. And uh, that like in the MC in the MCU, it's like, it's like they're celebrities, but divorced from all of the accoutrement of celebrity where uh, everyone knows who they are, but no one owns Falcon merch or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, no one owns Winter Soldier merch uh, or Black Panther merch or whatever. And uh, that somehow they're, you know, these super famous um, household names, but are divorced from all of the mechanisms of capital that would make them so and uh, or exploit them as such. Well, the as far as I understand it, Um, the public knowledge of them really started in 2012 with the Battle of New York. Like, that's Mm -hmm. sort of the premise that we are given, that there's been military knowledge of them the whole time with the PIMs working in the 80s and, Mm -hmm. you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. going back to the 40s, but that the general public seems to have been clued into all of it around the Battle of New York. And in this world... Um, they've told us that this, uh, compound V program in the soups go back to 1971 and, um, you know, all of these people we're meeting have been in the public eye for a long time already. Like Haley Joel Osment is roughly your age, right? So Mm -hmm. in real life, we know he's in his thirties and he's talking about, uh, having been on a teen superhero in a teen superhero situation. And we see a little clip from a TV show that he had when he was a kid, not a teen, but like a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is like an eighties TV show or late eighties, early nineties kind of TV show looking thing. And yeah. so we know that this merchandise machine and the public facing part of it has been going on for a really long time um so i can forgive the mcu if they if that's something that they'll at least retcon in of like you know now the now that falcon has brought to our attention that the avengers um need to be paying paid in order for their lives not to fall apart back home while they're off saving the world and license their merchandise, license their images, like take over all of it and create a business. Like, you know, there's an opportunity for that to be an aspect of the world building in the story that has more mm-hmm. to it than just, you know, a nod to what the business side of Avengers Inc. is. Right. It's only awkward because they've already had so many instances of like, here's someone with, you know, Avengers Halloween masks or... Uh, mm-hmm. Iron Man toys kind of stuff that like someone like this stuff does already exist in your world and uh, no one seems to care like why or how and uh, like like it's something they never dwell on in the X-Men movies but that 
uh, I think particularly in, in Logan that like um, it's a it's a major plot point that they're trying to get to these coordinates that were in an issue of the X Men comic mm. and uh, like that Logan comments on like that yes they made comics out of our lives and exploits but it's mostly bullshit you know it's it's just it's just you know stories to sell to kids and uh, but acknowledging that this is something that they did as a group for money you know that mm, like mm-hmm. uh, that there was a business side to the x-men as a venture and uh that you know it's it's, it's i don't know it's uh, weird that they've never broached that in the mcu well i mean stark industries and shields the military industrial complex like i think i think it's more surprising like falcon is the first time that i have considered the fact that uh, or or where they named that the Avengers aren't on Stark Industries payroll, mm. you know, and and Shield has already been disbanded by this point, and so they wouldn't be on the American military's payroll. And with the advent of Thor and Loki and Doctor Strange and um, Captain Marvel, like all of these people who have an interdimensional or intergalactic allegiance before an American allegiance, it wouldn't make sense for most of them to be on the U.S. military Mm -hmm. payroll. But, like, how do they live and eat when they aren't hanging out at the Avengers compound? And, you know, for some of them, if they're gods or, I don't know, have a fleet of spaceships at their disposal or something... I mean, the Guardians of the Galaxy, we know what their deal is, how they make their money. But yeah, I think that it it raises a point I hope they'll come back to in a way that is as satisfactory as what we're getting from the boys. Was that your... You were sharing what you wish they would... What the MCU had from this when you were talking about that, right? Like you were answering your own question. Or do you have another answer for that? Um, no, I, I was, uh, expanding on my answer. You said. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think mine would be, uh, a character like the deep who's, uh, a superhero, but is, is just really bad at it. Even, even when they have funny characters, they're still, you know, Ant-Man's still good at the superhero stuff. Like, uh, they don't have anyone who's just purely incompetent. I think that would be fun. Like, um, you know, just a, a, a thorn in everyone's side that uh, th- they are burdened with working with. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts? No, I don't think so. Do you? No, nothing new. So join us next time when we will be starting on Loki. Yeah! Bye. Bye.